91.3 KBCS, Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Coming up on The Grit this morning is my interview with former King County Council member Larry Gossett, a former Seattle chapter Black Panther Party member and one of the Gang of Four, a phrase coined for four very influential people in fighting for equity and securing social services for Seattle community groups. Also in this interview is Governor Gary Locke. Governor Locke served as the 10th United States Ambassador to China. He was the U.S. Secretary of Commerce under the Obama administration, the 21st Governor of Washington State, and the first Chinese-American governor in U.S. history. You'll start this interview off with Councilmember Gossett discussing the power of building alliances with other students of color in Seattle during the 1960s and 70s. Your work has been around coalition building among people of color. Tell me about the history. There have been conflict between people of color in this community and in this nation uh, in the past between Asians and Blacks, between Blacks and Latinos, between all the minorities and Native American folks. But in Seattle, what I would like to at least spend a couple minutes on has been the kind of unity that we've been able to build despite these cultural, ethnic differences because it was necessary that we have united fronts in the political arena. So we've been able to come together. I'd like to start with the Black Student Union that I got involved in organizing at the University of Washington. The BSU at the University of Washington became the first Black student union in the country. The university had established itself, operated off the premise that we are here to serve white, middle-class youth and younger adults. And there was no attention, no legitimacy given to the other national minorities living in Washington State. The BSU had non-Blacks at its origins. He had two Native American sisters and one Latino, a brother, and about 20 Black students. All three are examples of the very small number of uh, non-white students that were on the campus at the University of Washington in the winter of 1968. 35,000 students, about 200-plus Asians four Latinos, two Native Americans, and 63 Blacks. And then, in turn, we use that information to charge the university with institutionally a racist environment. We set up the ethnic studies program to teach the truth about national minority histories in Washington State, and we said classes needed to be on the campus. We also said there needed to be academic and social structures on the campus that were responsive to the needs of non-white students. And that led to the university building the Ethnic Cultural Theater and the Ethnic Cultural Center. Right away, we demanded change. We said we we demanded that the university establish a program to recruit minorities. And by minorities at that time, we said Blacks, Latinos, Asians, Pacific Islanders, Uh, and Native Americans. But we went a little further than that. We became the first Black student union in the country that demanded that more poor whites get an opportunity to come to the University of Washington. 
So when the university under the leadership of Dr. Samuel Kelly set up a program, it had a black division, it had an Asian and Pacific Islander division, it had a Latino division, and it had a Native American and disadvantaged white division. So we included everybody and saw the need to do that. Former King County Council member Larry Gossett goes on to describe the work of the Gang of Four. Council member Gossett was a key member of four powerful activists in the Seattle area. In this next excerpt of the interview, Council member Gossett refers to Bob Santos, hailing from Seattle's Chinatown International District, Roberto Maestas, founder of El Centro de la Raza of Beacon Hill, and Bernie Whitebear. Daybreak Star Indian Cultural Center, a nonprofit organization offering indigenous social and cultural services for urban indigenous people in the Seattle area. All four of us came together under, you know, in light of the struggles that were going on here in the Pacific Northwest. Gary and I have already mentioned that we we're both Franklin graduates, but what I'd like to add right now is that Roberto Maestas in the winter quarter of 1968 was a teacher at Franklin. He was the Spanish teacher. And the only reason I met him is when we had that sit-in at Franklin after the principal had kicked two leaders of the Black Student Union out of school for having fights with white kids. And according to the Black students, that was the, about the 11th conflict that year between Black and, and uh, white students. And in every case, the Black students were suspended and the white kids were sent back to college. Also, when we went into the school that day, we were told that two African-American women were being put out of school for wearing their hair natural. The principal had actually written a note saying they cannot return to Franklin without their hair being straightened because they were not beautiful women anymore. So we mobilized, had to sit in, and we won the ideal of getting these students back in the school. At the University of Washington, after we had a sit-in later in May of 68, we won the right to set up that minorities program that I set up. So Roberto and I met each other that day. I met Bernie White Bear only because 1970, he called the BSU office and said, we would like for our Black brothers to support our takeover at Fort Lawton, where we're trying to get land that was promised us way back in 1855 by a treaty we signed, and we never got the 34 acres. And we sent Black Student Union and Black Panthers out to show solidarity with our Native brothers and sisters. I met Bob Santos, one of the founders of the International District Improvement Association in Chinatown International District at what was called uh, Caritas House, which was a community service center on 19th and Jefferson, 1968, when we couldn't find a place for the BSU or the Black Panther Party to meet, and Bob let us meet there. So that's how the four amigos met each other through struggle, and we were able to work together for 40 years here in the Northwest, and we had calls from all over the country asking us how we did it and became a model for other multiracial organizing efforts. Just as you were talking about the the occupation of spaces in order to facilitate the Black Student Union at Franklin High School to start the kind of work 
to get the African-American studies and into the University of Washington. There seems to be, you know, I'm just thinking of this Chaz Chop that happened over uh, June, the Capitol Hill occupied protest to defund the police, which made international news. And um, this made me think of how occupation as a form of protest has a rich history in this region between the Franklin High School sit-in and... the University of Washington, and then the takeover of the Beacon Hill Elementary School, which became El Centro de la Raza later with its victory, the occupation of Fort Lawton to take over the former military facility for services to the urban indigenous community through Daybreak Star. And tell me about the occupying spaces, you know, to fight for a cause that happens a lot in our region. Uh, I think that it was a reflection of the region and uh, we had very socially conscious young as well as older adult leadership here in the greater Seattle area that helped us to be successful at getting the powers that be, whether it be city, county or state government to be responsive to the legitimate needs of historically discriminated against minorities in this region. I think that's what led to us being able to be victorious and people got organized effectively to support El Central, uh, Daybreak Star, the creation of the International District Improvement Association and many other organizations in Chinatown International District, as well as the growth of the Central Motivation Program at camp and the Indian struggle out on the Puyallup River, we got called to be supportive out there. And then we, in turn, uh, asked them to come to Seattle to support various struggles of minorities here. And we were relatively successful in a lot of those efforts. I know that Bob Santos was able to get a tremendous multiracial mobilization of support around the building of hundreds and hundreds of affordable housing units in the international district, which has a lot to do with why that is not a completely gentrified community today. I want to add um, to something that Larry said. Um, When Larry and and his uh, compatriots occupied Franklin High School in 1968, uh, I was actually a student uh, that year. I was a senior. It was in the spring of my senior year. And, And Quite frankly, you know, you were asking about sit-ins and occupations, but that sit-in of the principal's office opened my eyes to the struggles of black students. And in some ways, I led a very sheltered life uh, at Franklin High School, even though it came from a very um, ethnically diverse neighborhood. Uh, But I was, uh, you know, didn't have many friends at all, quite frankly, and certainly not that many friends uh, that were African-American. And so so all of us led somewhat of a sheltered life, uh, faced our own issues of discrimination, but really wasn't aware that much about the struggles of Black Americans. And so occupations and peaceful protest and, and of course, the civil rights movement by Martin Luther King and the actions of former Congressman John Lewis during that period of time, they really opened the eyes to so many people across America. The same way that the video of the killing of George Floyd has really opened the eyes to many more Americans and and actually people around the world. So I want to thank Larry 
uh, for that courageous effort and, and just everything that they did at the University of Washington that then made it possible for all people and, and especially people of color to gain admission to the University of Washington or even to take courses in ethnic studies until it was Larry and the Black Student Union. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Larry. Now I wanted to uh, turn to Governor Locke. You hail from Beacon Hill. And as I understand, your grandfather was a houseboy. And then you moved on to the governor's mansion, navigating these institutions throughout the state. So navigating the interests of rural communities of eastern Washington, in addition to the urban areas. People currently look at you, you know, as kind of the embodiment of the model minority. And that can have its, you know, positive and negative consequences. Talk about how you navigated that. Uh, when I ran for office, um, as you indicated, Yuko, I mean, the, the state of Washington still is predominantly white. Even when I ran for King County Executive and, and won, I mean, the county is predominantly white. So you cannot count on the so-called minority vote to get you into office. Even as a state legislator, the district has a large percentage of Asian Americans, but many of them are not U.S. citizens and can't vote. And so you just can't rely on an ethnic group, at least in our state of Washington or King County, to propel you into office. My family story is that my grandfather came to the United States as a teenager and worked as a houseboy for a family in the state capitol learned English while washing dishes and sweeping floors and doing the laundry. He went back to China, got married, had a family where my father was born and aunts and uncles. And then grandfather came back by himself to continue work. Uh, by then he was working as a cook in the hospitals of Seattle, Virginia Mason. And eventually it was Dr. Mason, the founder of Virginia Mason, who, who suggested that grandpa go back home and bring the whole family over. And so he did. And so my dad came over with aunts and uncles when my father was about 12 or 13 years old. They were in detention for several days at the Immigration Naturalization Service just off of Dearborn, down by the stadiums. And uh, it was Doc Mason who went down to vouch uh, for my grandfather and my father and aunts and uncles that they were legit and released. And then my father... Uh, joined the United States Army just before the outbreak of World War II as part of the Normandy invasion and the very vicious battles against the Germans under General Patton's march to uh, Berlin. The war was over. My dad went to Hong Kong, met my mom. They got married and brought her back to Seattle. And so that's where we all grew up as kids. Uh, Yesler Terrace Housing Project for the first few years and then uh, moved to Beacon Hill. I faced discrimination and didn't really know it at the time. Uh, from a teacher in the third grade at Beacon Hill Elementary School, which is now El Centro de la Raza. A teacher would ask us every morning what we had for breakfast. And we had so many Italian kids, Japanese kids, uh, Chinese kids, Filipino kids, immigrant kids. And if we did not have the so-called traditional ham and eggs, pancakes for breakfast, we had our hands slapped with a ruler. And so, you know, the Filipino kids and the Japanese kids, I mean, for the Chinese kids, we had shifun or, or what we call juk, which was a kind of a rice porridge with uh, my mom put fish and put meat in it and vegetables. So it was probably healthier than ham and eggs, quite frankly, uh, or bacon and eggs and pancakes. But we had our hands slapped. And so so many of us kids 
we're trying to then rebel against our parents and saying we wanted to be quote American. We were trying to wash out and and get rid of any vestiges of our ethnic culture. And so I have to say that growing up, I'm embarrassed to say the amount of grief I caused my parents trying to reject my ethnic culture. And it wasn't until the civil rights movement and quite frankly, the the efforts that Larry and his colleagues uh, started and Martin Luther King and John Lewis and the war against Vietnam and the protests that I really opened my eyes and could really understand that I could be both Asian and American. I am Asian American, that, that we can celebrate our Asian heritage at the same time we celebrate the 4th of July and all the other American holidays. We all want good jobs for our kids. We want good schools. We want a clean environment. We want safe streets and we want to be respected. And so I really tried to, in all my campaigns, just try to relate to everyday people and say that, you know, my experience may be a little bit different from yours, but down deep, we share the same dreams and aspirations and worries. And I am committed to addressing these issues. And I think that resonated. Your growing up in Beacon Hill, becoming governor in Washington State, and then you went on to become the ambassador to China. You know, ironically, you, know, you were the victim of racial slurs when you resigned as ambassador to China. Um, they considered you disloyal to the Chinese because you supported American values such as human rights, religious freedom, and less pollution. You just gave us the story from where you come from and the navigation of that in the U.S., could you reflect on how that ambassadorship to China, you know, this balancing of, of the worlds that you have needed to through throughout your life, you know, came through with this uh, ambassadorship to China? Well, first, let me just say that in my public service in the United States, certainly in the state of Washington, I really drew upon my experience growing up as a son of immigrants and as a person of color to really try to ensure that all the policies that I dealt with and the laws that we were creating had that sensitivity. When the Republicans under Governor Spellman tried to eliminate adult dental care for low-income adults, I, I just had that image of my grandmother who I visited in almost the refugee camps outside of Hong Kong because she just escaped across the communist border before it closed down in the early 1960s. And she had only one tooth the people in the in the little settlement had to puree her food for her so that she could eat. And so when we did welfare reform or when or when the Congress uh, under Newt Gingrich eliminated food stamps for legal immigrants, I said, you know, this is contrary to what America stands for. And so Washington state was one of the only and the first state to offer state funded food stamps for legal immigrants. Let me say that when I went to China, I think uh, early on there was a lot of fanfare uh, about my, you know, carrying my own luggage and traveling uh, economy class and buying my own coffee. And certainly there was that picture that went viral even before we landed in China, where we were about to get on the airplane at, at SeaTac, and I was getting some coffee at the local Starbucks at the airport, and my a daughter was standing next to me, and I had a backpack on. I don't know who took that photograph. It went viral. And so it was all the buzz in China that why is there a U.S. ambassador carrying a backpack and buying his own coffee because the <laughs> officials in China have everything taken care of for them. Someone holds the briefcase, someone holds an umbrella over their head, so, and someone runs off and fetches tea or coffee for them. 
after a few days, it gets to be known that we travel economy class. Well, that's unheard of. So there was all this great um, fanfare, and we became very popular with the people. To the consternation of the Chinese government, quite frankly, because then the Chinese people were saying, why aren't our government officials like Ambassador Locke? And I said, oh, oh, no, we can't have that. I mean, this is not getting me off on the right foot if the Chinese officials are going to be resentful of, of me. In the end, I had more access to high-ranking Chinese government officials than any other U.S. ambassador uh, before me. And it was because of, of my Chinese heritage. They were very proud that I was uh, appointed as U.S. ambassador. But the Chinese people were beginning to think and expect that I would take the position of China in all these U.S.-China issues, being a Chinese-American. And perhaps it was the fact that I didn't speak Mandarin that really helped, uh, and I spoke Cantonese, but not Mandarin, which is the official dialect that then reinforced in the minds of both the government officials and the Chinese people, ooh, Ambassador Locke is really an American. I think it helped them understand that I was in China to represent the interests of America, the American people, the American government, and President Obama. I was not there to advocate on behalf of China. Certainly in all my dealings with the US government, I think I had the advantage of understanding the Chinese perspective and could help relay that uh, to Washington, D.C. But my job was to represent America and not China. So when I left uh, China to come back to the United States, there were some publications by the Chinese government that said, good riddance, uh, you know, he's a, he's a banana, he's yellow on the outside, but white <laughs> on the inside. Oh, Lord. Uh, no more showboating and and you know it's all it's all fake that he that he travels economy class and it's all an act to try to disrupt and undermine the chinese government but what was really great about the blowback to that official government propaganda editorial say good riddance was that the people on the social internet started saying how embarrassed they were by this government editorial and how proud they were of me. To this day, when I go back to China, uh, pre-COVID-19, I'd, I'd run across people who would just say, thank you very much uh, for exposing the air pollution. Thank you very much for improving the visa process. Thank you very much for being a very humble and, and everyday person. And, uh, and even the government officials privately would tell me how much they appreciated everything that we were doing. It was just that the propaganda arm of the Chinese government was trying to cut me down. Hmm. Well, yeah, the, the people speak. Uh, there was a question from, uh, from our questionnaire. He had a question for you, Governor Locke. Given the increased tensions between the U.S. and China recently, how do you see the relationship between China and the U.S. play out in the coming years? Well, clearly, uh, these are very tense times in the U.S.-China relationship, and it's really unfortunate. First of all, America and many other Western countries have very deep concerns about the economic trade policies of China, and now even more their human rights policies with respect to the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, and even their approach to the people of Hong Kong. So these are really, really tough times. But we also have so many interests in common, and, and we have a lot of partnerships, whether it's on medical research, uh, on collaboration on clean energy, trying to combat climate change. Uh, China's doing a lot uh, to combat climate change. 
and unfortunately we in America have gone a little bit backwards. We are the two largest emitters of greenhouse gases. China produces more than any other country, but they have three to four times the population of America. Americans produce more per person than any other uh, country in the world. And so it really requires the cooperation, the concerted efforts of both countries. Because if China were to do a lot of stuff to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and America does nothing, there'll be no benefit to the world and vice versa. If America were really to drastically reduce greenhouse gas emissions and China did very little, then all of our efforts will be for naught. So we need to work together. Um, the trade war was ridiculous. Yes, we need to go after the economic and trade policies of China, but we can't do it alone. Because when we imposed tariffs on Chinese products, which then made all of the Chinese products much more expensive in the United States, from clothing to sporting goods to uh, tools, you name it, China retaliated and imposed tariffs, which is a surcharge on the price of all American goods going into China. So what did that do? Uh, it made the stuff coming from Canada, Germany, France, Australia much cheaper compared to the American goods. So what did the Chinese do? They bought from Canada, Germany, France, Australia, instead of America. So th their businesses and their workers benefited while American companies and American workers lost out. And now those European and Canadian companies and governments, they very much support what we're trying to do. I mean, they have the same concerns about what China is doing in terms of trade and economic policies as well. But when it became a trade war between the United States and China, the companies of our allies, they benefited while they were rooting us on, all right? They got all the business while we suffered. We should have been working with all of our allies and doing things together against China. Just our whole approach to China has been wrong. The trade war was ridiculous, but we need to figure out a way in which we can cooperate while at the same time uh, standing up for our values in terms of rule of law, fair trade and economic policies, and certainly human rights. Thank you, Governor Nalaka. Recently with the COVID-19 pandemic, how do we reconcile a narrative about China that will not harm Asian Americans? Well, I, I think this uh, blowback and pushback against Asian Americans and specifically Chinese, Chinese Americans, uh, is because of our failed policies here at home. I mean, uh, we have the, or people in high office that are trying to, you know, deflect criticism and the blame and responsibility by saying it's all China's fault. That's clearly, fun. China has mishandled this and clearly they need to be held account. But how is it that uh, so many other countries got the same information at the time that the United States did. And, and we can say it was not good information, but they got the same information, the same warnings as the United States, and yet they have been able to have dramatically fewer deaths than we in America. You know, we're 4% of the population, but 25% of all the COVID-19 deaths in the world. How is that? How is it that Taiwan less than 100 miles from the mainland of China, and they had a lot more people going back and forth between Taiwan and China than China and the United States. Uh, they got the same late warnings from China and from the WHO. I mean, if the United States had been Taiwan adjusting for a population, we would have had less than 100 deaths. 
compared to 200,000 that we have today. I mean, how is it that Taiwan and South Korea, I mean, so close to China with, with all the people interacting, and even Japan had so few deaths, fewer deaths. What about Canada? All right. So, yeah, we, we need to get the answers from China, and China certainly should have been more forthcoming about the, the early uh, cases and the extent of the cases and what was going on. But all the other countries that had the same defective information were able to treat and, and handle this so much better than the United States. That was Governor Gary Locke, former U.S. ambassador to China, former U.S. Secretary of Commerce during the Obama administration, 21st governor of Washington state and current Bellevue College interim president. Former King County Council member Larry Gossett, also a Seattle chapter Black Panther Party member and one of the illustrious Gang of Four activists started off that segment. This interview is part of an election season partnership with the International Examiner Pan-Asian American publication at iExaminer.org and Asian Pacific Americans for Civic Empowerment. For KBCS, I'm Yuko Kodama. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.